grandfather. Um, uh, you know, it's your word, God, that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And um, it's alive. And God, there's going to be a lot of your word shared tonight. And um, I just pray that your word, Lord, would have its way in our hearts, including mine, Lord. Um, and uh, Lord, it, you say that all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correction, training in righteousness. I pray, God, that you would um, do your work tonight through your word. Father, may my words not be a distraction to the word that you want to get out. But I just pray that you'd um, help us to be alert and um, and hear each individually um, what you would um, uh, have us to hear tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, there's a lot I want to share, so there's really no time to start out with funny stories because we're on a mission, the mission of the church. <laughs> See what I did there? Um, so last week I talked about making a distinction uh, between the, our church statement about um, the purpose of the church. And uh, when I talked about making the distinction between purpose and mission, and uh, I couldn't think of a word for the third part. I was talking about the whys and the what's in the hows, but God gave me a word this week for the third part, and that word is execution. Um, so the purpose and mission, and then you call the, the third one the execution of, of how, you know, the execution of how we're going to accomplish the mission. So, um, but it boils down to the why, the what, and the how of the church. Um, and the reason I wanted to make distinctions is because in preparing for just even this two-part message, I, I really read a lot of things. And um, uh, whether you look up purpose of the church, mission of the church, or whatever, um, there's just, I mean... Someone will be like, oh, these are the five purposes, these are the seven purposes, these are the ten missions, these are the... And it's just like, okay, uh, okay, I just... So I boil it down to just why, what, and how. And um, so just a lot of people have drawn a lot of various conclusions on what the purposes of the church are. And I'll explain this a little bit later, but you know, you're reading through the New Testament, there's all kinds of commands from the Lord. Um, love the Lord with all your God, love the Lord with all your heart. Is, is that the purpose? You know? Love your neighbors. Is that the purpose? You know, I mean it's kind of I'll explain. Um, do this in memory of me. That is take the Lord's Supper. Is that is that our mission? Is that the purpose? Um, and on it on it goes with 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 any different thing you can read. So so that is why I'm trying to break down all these things into why, what, and how. I'm sure that what I'm covering is not all comprehensive by any means, so trust me that um, I'm not trying to say that uh, what Andy's saying here, he's saying that uh, what he, everything he says is exactly right and everyone else is wrong. No, I'm not saying that. But I think what I'm trying to say is it's going to cover at a high enough level um, what I'm covering that we can begin to execute the plan that God has revealed to us, okay, and then allow room for him to guide our steps as we move forward with the why, what's, and the hows. So last week, in summary, uh-oh, this is going out, I think. Um, oh, okay. 
So last week, um, in summer, we talked about the fact that the church was the one thing that Jesus promised to build, and that is his church. And there were five whys that I shared for why he created the church, and I'll just read these quickly. Um, too quick to write down, but uh, one, he created the church to be a permanent display or portrait of God's multifaceted wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and that came from Ephesians. Number two, he created the church to draw a, distinguish, a distinction between light and darkness. Three, he created the church as a vehicle whereby he could demonstrate his power and authority to his people and the world. Four, he created the church to be the garden for which his people would grow. Five, he created the church to be a picture of love and unity, like the Godhead and the marriage relationships. Relationship. But today we are going to look at the, just the mission of the church, that is the what are we called to do, and the execution aspect of the church, that is how are we supposed to do it. Well, Liberty Hill's Bible Church's mission statement is this, to make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. And um, I'm happy to report this afternoon that I don't think our mission statement needs any change at all. And um, from everything that I've been studying for the last you know, many weeks here. In fact, through my study, preparing for this message in the last two weeks, God has actually just solidified my belief in the why and the what of what we need to be doing. So where do I get this from? And this is where I'll start sharing verses. So I'll, you know, we won't look them all up because I have them written down here. Um, but I'll, I'll, you can write them down if you're taking notes. The one that was shared, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, in Mark's gospel, it's said this way, preach the gospel to every creature. Um, why is it the mission of LHBC to make disciples? I mean, this message was for the 11, right? So, so why is that our mission statement? Um, well, if the 11 were to teach new disciples to observe all that Jesus commanded them, that would also include this command to go and therefore make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that he commanded them. So you see, Jesus' mission was created to be perpetual. Um, otherwise, it would have only lasted one generation after the 11 original disciples had all died off. So praise the Lord that this command made it all the way from the original 11 to others, and to others, and to others through 2,000 years, eventually to someone who shared that gospel with you and me. Um, it perpetuated that long, and it'll continue to perpetuate as long as Jesus is building his church. Um, Mark 14.9 says this, um, and when Jesus was talking about the, uh, the woman who came and, and put perfume on him, uh, there at the end, it says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
Um, why was Jesus talking about the whole world to these guys? Um, well, because his plan was that his gospel would get out to the whole world. And um, Jesus' plan is for disciples to be from every nation, every tribe and people and language, according to Revelation 7, 9, because that's where people are going to be from. So it had to mean a perpetual mission just beyond the 11. Um, now, I really like how it says this in, in Luke 24, because one, it's Jesus talking, and it just really just short and sweet um, of him kind of summarizing what the message is. Um, it says in Luke 24, 46 to 49, and Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the what is, is this, in summary. The mission of making disciples consists of proclaiming the gospel, baptizing new believers, and teaching followers of Christ to observe all that he commanded. So if that is the mission of the church, and we believe that it is, what would you expect to see in the book of Acts? Well, we see precisely these things happening all throughout the book of Acts, all the way to the very last verse. In the last verse of the book of Acts, which is Acts 28.31, but I'll start reading in verse 30, it's speaking about Paul, and it says this, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So it just goes to show that that was the mission, and it continued all through the book of Acts from cover to cover. So why did Paul live this way? What was Paul's motivation? Of course, he gave credit to the grace of God in his life multiple times. I'll just share one verse where he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And if we are to live like this, we can. But it's not simple. He said, it can only be if we no longer live, implying for self, um, and allow Jesus Christ to live through us. And um, this, I, I had this thought even driving here today, I was reading, up. <clears throat> I always share with these guys, they always kid me about it, but I'm always reading news about Clemson football. And it was an interview with a football player who was a senior this year, and really this has been the first year that he started. He was like a five-star athlete from high school, and um, anyway, he, he, I took a snapshot of the quote because he was saying, I've been playing, I've been playing not to lose instead of playing to win. And when I'm playing not to lose, I just get into my own head, and things that I think are gonna happen, bad things, end up happening. And um, so I just changed my whole outlook, starting going into my senior year here, beginning of the year, and I was like, I gotta be playing to win, like I did in high school. In high school, I just played free, I just, I played to win. I wasn't like nervous and just playing defensively and playing not to lose. And, and that just made me think of that's kind of like 
how we can live our Christian lives sometimes, it would... Dying to self is playing to win. Um, Living like we're playing not to lose is holding on to not wanting to die to self. That's kind of what what it comes down to. Um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.23 that he does all things for the sake of the gospel. His statement is in the context of living his life in a certain way so that people would be saved. Um, Saved from what? Well, in Romans 5, 9, he says, having been, well, saved from the wrath of God. Um, That comes from Romans 5, 9. He says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So he's saying that he does all things for the sake of the gospel so that people would be saved. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul lays out for the Corinthians really this same mission Um, which I think is interesting um, because it's in the midst of a very difficult letter that he's writing to the Corinthians, um, considering the circumstance of his first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, where he had to really kind of do some scolding for what was going on in the church. And um, so Paul seems to want to make sure that he gets out in front of them the message here in 2 Corinthians that, hey, we're all on the same team here, And God has given us a mission to accomplish. So in light of these other things going on, let us not lose sight of the main thing, which is our mission. So here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul lays out a very clear message, again, validating our mission, which is to be about making disciples. And so I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 20. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, Therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh, even though we have known Christ by the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And, um, you, you know, I just, uh, I, as I was preparing for this, I was just thinking like, you know, in these days even of COVID, I mean, I don't know about you all, but I, I'm working from home every day, not seeing my coworkers, talk home on the phone during the day, but it's a little bit different when, when you're just talking and talking business and stuff, but I, like have an opportunity this Tuesday to drive down to Joplin with a, a co-worker and, you know, what, two and a half hours there, two and a half hours back. So I'm just praying that God would give an opportunity to talk about things. And um, like I shared the verse last week that um, he saved the people for himself that we might proclaim his excellencies. I'm praying that God will give me an opportunity to proclaim his excellencies to 
to Greg in the course of five hours worth of driving that day on Tuesday. Um, but the last verse I want to share relative to our mission is from 1 Corinthians 10, 33 and 11, 1, where Paul said, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And what I want to make sure to get across, so I'm talking about Paul's life here, him talking about following his example, I want to make sure to get across relative to the mission of the church um, by sharing these verses is not to come away thinking about the Apostle Paul's life in its entirety and all the things he did. I don't want you to come away thinking, well, I'll never be Paul. I, I, don't, I don't live like Paul. I'm not Paul, so just... I'm going to tune out from here on out. Just forget it. No, I don't think that even that's what Paul is trying to say here when he says, follow my example. If you read it in the context, he's talking about living his life for others. Okay, he's not talking about, um, not that each one of us will be planting churches all over the world like Paul did. So if living your life for others ends up looking like planting churches all over the world, that's great. But the point is this, live your life for others and let God take care of the results of what that ends up looking like for the glory of God, I might add. That's what Paul's point is, live your life for others. So again, the what is this? The mission of making disciples consists of proclaiming the gospel, baptizing new believers, and teaching followers of Christ to observe all that he commanded. Now let's move on to looking at the execution aspect, or the house of the church. <clears throat> so for this, again, I'm going to lean heavily on what we learn from the New Testament and what patterns we see in the New Testament. And, um, and first I just want to lay the groundwork to distinguish some terms which you may have heard before. Um, but I'm going to use the term local church uh, uh, to refer to a local gathering of believers um, like Liberty Hills Bible Church, and I will use the term universal church to refer to all the believers in the world. Um, and then there were regions, which you'll see verses here, or perhaps bigger cities that had multiple local churches. Um, and here's some verses to back this up. For example, 1 Corinthians 1-2 says this, when he's writing to the Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So if you break that down, the local church in Corinth is referred to as the Church of God in Corinth, and it is made up of those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, that's local, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's universal, both their Lord, universal, and ours, local. Um, and then you have 1 Corinthians 16, 19, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, and 2 Corinthians 8, 1. And these are from those passages. He's talking, he uses the, these phrases. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Um, so there were multiple churches, local churches in Asia. Aquila and 
Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So that was obviously a local church meeting in their house. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, local church at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So multiple churches in Macedonia, multiple local churches in Macedonia um, in that region. So obviously regions had multiple local churches and some cities had one church, maybe it appeared, maybe a, a large church like Corinth. Um, and as we talked a little last week, when using the word church, we're talking about a gathering of believers or followers of Jesus Christ in a location. Um, here are some uses of the word by Paul. Colossians 4, 15 and 16. And to Nympha and the church in her house. Have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. To the church of the Thessalonians. And 1 Thessalonians 2, 14. They became imitators of the churches of God. And then 2 Thessalonians 1, 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. So... Back to the hows of how the church executes the mission. Again, this is, I'm trying to explain this and hope, hopefully you get it. Um, this is high level at, at looking at how the church operated. Um, but of course, there are so many commands to us as followers of Jesus within the church that really are a part of the how, okay? For example, we're told to walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Um, well, I'm not going to share that as one of the hows, okay? One of the hows of how the church executes the mission, because that's, that's a command, and there's probably, you could probably pull out a hundred other commands like that, that really are part of the, the hows, okay? But I'm, because um, obviously, if we didn't, if, if no one was walking by the Spirit, um, which, which means um, if you don't walk by the Spirit, you'll carry out the desire of the flesh, if we were all carrying out the desire of the flesh, then the church is not going to execute its mission very well. Okay, um, but that so, but that's like not the overall how that I'm going to share. I'm just going to share six overall hows that um, pick out from just focusing on verses about the church in general. Okay, so um, otherwise. I'd take till now, until the end of the year, to be talking about the purpose and mission of the church. Um, but a lot of these are going to be hit on anyway through the rest of the the rest of the covenant statement, because a lot of the other hows um, relate to encouraging one another, loving one another, um, uh, listening to the apostles' teaching, and uh, and all all of these things, which are very important. Um, but let's get started. Number one, <clears throat> local churches, this is part of the how, um, just big level hows of how the church um, executed the mission of making disciples, baptizing, um, and, and uh, teaching all that Jesus commanded. Number one, local churches were established in various cities all over the place. Um, so in addition to all the verses that we just read about where all these different churches were, um, Romans 16, 1, 
and 3 through 5 says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny, but like um, these days you hear really the, the buzzword is planting churches. Okay, but um, but really, back then, what really happened is Paul went out, you know, at first with Barnabas, and they proclaimed the gospel. People got saved, and you know, it was like, hey, here's a gathering of believers. Uh, we'll establish a church. We'll establish a church here. It wasn't like like. We're going to plant a church. Um, it's a church was planted by virtue of the fact that believers were um, they made disciples, okay, um, or, or people got saved in, in different cities. Um, if you get what I'm saying, it's kind of like if we would, but today, like let's just say some a group of us from here said we're going to go plant a church in St. Joseph. And we went to St. Joseph, and we proclaimed the gospel for five years, and no one got saved. Well, technically, we'd probably still feel like we planted a church in St. Joseph because all of us would still be in that church. But that's not how that you know that's not how they did it. If they would go to a city and no one got saved, there would be no church in that city. They just moved on to another place where people did get saved, and then that would be where. Um, a church was established. So, um, number two, um, God's plan was to have leaders in each local church. Um, in particular, I'm going to share these verses, um, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, which were the elders, plural elders, in every church, which was the local assembly in that city. And this is from Acts 14, 19 through 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned, I think that's interesting, the phrase, and had made many disciples, just like Jesus said, go and make disciples. Uh, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Um, then in Acts 20, verse 17 and 28, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And he exhorted them, saying, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So 
Um, it really was God's plan to have leaders um, called elders um, in each local church. And um, so that's that's number two of the big of the big high level how things work. Local churches were established in various cities, and God's plan was to have leaders called elders in each local church. And then number three, um, and this is very important. Um, I mean, we see it in, in, in you'll see the verse I'm going to share here in Romans, see it in Ephesians, we see it in Corinthians, in First Corinthians. Number three is God disperses gifts among the individual members of his body to build up the local church. Um, Romans 12, 4 through 8 says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. I'm going to read that. I'm going to read that with a different inflection. How it, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Um, so it's just, I mean, God disperses these gifts among individual members of his body to build up the local church. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave apostles, he, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. I mean, there, there wouldn't be these people if he didn't gift these individuals to be able to, to, to do these things. Um, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, which we read in Romans, is made up of every member that's supposed to be using their gifts, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then, and then 1 Corinthians 12, 28, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And, and this next one, it just, um, it's just interesting how much you'll hear the word builds up, builds up the church, builds up the church. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, 5, 12, 19, 23, and 28. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. 
So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words with a tongue. Five versus 10,000 to instruct others, which would build them up. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if there is one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So the, the takeaway from all these verses here and about the gifts is, one, God is the one, God is the one who creates this hierarchy of gifts, and he's the one who disperses them in the local church. Okay? And then the bottom line of the passion and desire for having and deploying gifts has to be to strive to excel in building up the church and to instruct and build up others. And these gifts are in the context of building up the local church. Um, and, and I think that if we, I mean, it's like uh, Paul even um, he, he tells them to, um, to have a passion for having gifts that build up the church. Um, I think in the one passage he says, um, pray that you'll have his gifts, especially that you may prophesy, which he says that's a gift that, that can build up people up, can build up the church. So it, it's have a passion for um, gifts that build up the church. And that is, um, have that desire. And... Um, and just uh, use use those gifts. Um, like it says, let us use them. Um, okay, so we have churches were established. God provided a leadership a mechanism, and then He gave gifts so that every member is involved. Um, as part of the, the growing process here. Um, and then fourth, <clears throat> um, the ministry of, quote, gifted individuals is in the local church, not outside on an island with its own ministry. Um, I'll explain this in a minute. And those God called out for a special work are called out by God from within the church and confirmed by the church and sent out from the local church. And they also maintain a relationship with the local church and come back and share God's work with the local church. Um, and what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that um, God's plan was all through the local church. Uh, it, it wasn't like, you know, I think, I'll, I think I'll build this thing called the church and then anyone who wants to have like their own side ministry over here, you know, we can have like this guy over here, this guy over here, and someone's got a passion for this. Go ahead and start your own ministry, and everyone have all their own ministries out there, and the church can just be like the side issue. No, his plan was the local church, and that was it. There was no like other organization that was part of his plan. Um, and I'll explain through these verses here. Um, after Paul met Jesus, he didn't start his own ministry, but he was brought into the local church. Um, Acts eleven twenty six says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then in Acts 13, 1 through 3, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The local church sent them off. Um, these prophets and teachers didn't say, like, you know what, I have this amazing gift. I'm going to go start a TV show um, and uh, on TVN, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, have my own ministry. So, um, and then Acts 14, 27 and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this is Paul and Barnabas coming back to the local church. The local church had sent them out. They, they did what God called them to do. They come back and they're sharing the fruits of their work back with the local church, um, which was their home base. Um, so takeaways. <clears throat> Today... Um, and I don't know if this is something I really haven't looked in, in history of the church. Um, maybe this is something that's only happened in the last 100 or 200 years but in, in the history of the church. But it just seems like individualism and, uh, and really sometimes it's just pra pragmatism. Um, you know, just it's, it's, uh, that has spawned many parachurch organizations and individual ministries that are not churches. Um, and I'm not going to say that they're not doing some good because that would not be true because the, um, they are doing some good. But it, it is impossible for a church to fulfill the mission of the church if its members contented themselves by replacing their involvement in the local church with participation in these groups. And the key word I'm using here um, is replacing their involvement in the local church. Okay. Um, and uh, if it's not the model, if it's not the model of these organizations to work alongside with local churches, then in some ways they are even—I'm sure it's unintentional—but they're unintentionally competing with the mission of the local church. And um, when, when I first got saved, um, and it's, it's interesting because I—I kind of got saved through—I um, uh, was at Clemson and uh, Camps Crusade for Christ which is not a church, uh, was pretty heavily active at Clemson. And it was through people knocking on my door. Well, actually it really wasn't necessarily, but it was it was really a relationship with a guy on the dorm floor that, um, but he, he was involved with Cancer Shade for Christ, but he was also involved in a local church. So I'll, I'll get back to that. But, um, but his involvement with Campus Crusade, um, I ended up getting saved, and so the campus director of Campus Crusade um, kind of ended up uh, getting me involved in a discipleship group, and they had meetings like on Thursday nights and things like that. Um, but what, what's interesting is that there's certain things that when, when I first became a Christian, I just started reading the Bible from cover to cover. I just read the New Testament over and over, I spent so much time reading the Word, um, that I just had thoughts about things and the way things should be, and no one had even taught me 
like a lot about the word yet. And uh, so I asked, um, his name was Barry, and um, he was a nice guy, great guy. But I asked him one time, I said, like, Barry, I said, what, um, you know, what, what are you involved in at your church and things like that? And um, because I could clearly see from my reading of the Bible that church was God's plan. Church was a big deal to God, and he created it. And Barry was like, oh, you know, I, um, I mean, my, my ministry is Campus Crusade, but we go to this church in town, we, you know, but that's just like, it's kind of like church to, to him and his family was like a sidebar. The Campus Crusade was their thing. And, and even as a young believer in my head, that wasn't, I was like, that doesn't seem, doesn't seem right. Um, and, um, uh, and, and really what I'm trying to say is it's, it's not right because the mission, the mission of the church cannot be fulfilled if everyone was living that way. And I'm not saying Camp Crusade wasn't doing good work. They were. People were getting saved. But what I'm saying is a lot of times parachurch organizations start like that because a lot of times someone will start off and look, look, the church isn't doing their job. So let's start an organization. I mean, we're going to start an organization to fill the void where the church is not doing their job. And um, But... I would contend that, like, let's let's get the church to start doing their job versus starting an organization to fill that gap. Let's do it through the local church. Um, you know, um, there were churches in the town of Clemson that, that could have been, you know, doing things on campus, and there were, actually. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we're going to be here at Liberty. We're going to have a presence. We're probably going to be less than a mile from William Jewell College. If we wanted to um, have outreach to the students of William Jewell College, then that's what we, we could do that. Um, and um, so anyway, uh, on the flip side, uh, I feel that there could be tremendous value if an organization or ministry outside of the local church's model was to work alongside and in harmony with the local churches. And just to give another example, you know, we've shared with you all, um, we haven't really gotten deeply involved with it yet, um, but um, these emails are starting to, I mean, every time I get an email from this organization, it, it is deeply convicting to me, but we've shared with you this organization called CareCorp, right? And I think this is a wonderful example of a non-church organization its whole model is to work alongside and in harmony with the church. They are, their whole method is we're just going to find the needs out there and share with the, the churches in town, these are the needs. Would, would someone, would one of your churches step up and, and offer to like meet that need? They're not like an organization that's saying like, we're going to start meeting all the needs in the community. We're going to leave it up to the churches to meet those needs so that the churches can develop relationships with the people that are that are needy and maybe people get saved through that. Then people get plugged into the local church and disciples are made and baptized and, and taught all of Jesus' commands. And, um, and, and they have needs. And uh, uh, one that they have right now even um, um, is... Uh, 
I, I guess a lot of so there, I guess there's social workers that um, have a role where, uh, for whatever reason, uh, parents that have been disconnected from their children, uh, they need to they need to have um, what would you call it? Um, they have meetings between the parents and children to work on trying to get them those families back together. Let's just say that maybe the parents were in jail or, or addicts or something, and they're getting back on their feet. They're getting their lives back together. Um, they, 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 right now, they need volunteers to fulfill the role of, of um, uh, facilitating those meetings between the parents and the children. They're, they do not have enough volunteers. Social workers, they don't have enough social workers to do it, so they're asking the churches can we get some volunteers from the churches to fulfill that role of facilitating those meetings? Um, so that that's just a beautiful picture to me of, of partnering with the local churches. Um, the fifth one, and I've only got six, so I thought I was going to be done a little bit. Um, fifth one here is uh, the networking, what, we, what, what you see here, um, the networking of local churches was leveraged for the good to meet pressing needs for the advancement of the gospel and even to utilize the gifts of certain individuals. Um, 1 Corinthians 16.1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Um, so they were taking this collection for, I think, some of the needy people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem that was going through a hard time. And... Um, uh, local churches were networking together to to uh, to, be, to participate in, in that collection. And then in 2 Corinthians 8, 18, 19, 23, and 24, it says, With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. That's interesting. That just popped out at me. He's calling the churches the glory of Christ. Um, so give proof before the churches of your love and are boasting about you to these men. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, it says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Um, so, so there was partnering going on in some form or fashion here between these local churches in the early days. So the sixth and last one I want to touch on today is just a theme and really actions you see all the way through the New Testament um, for I see as to how the early church went about the mission. And, and it's interesting because um, uh, I was t talking to Carolyn about this at the ball game last Sunday, but um, it, you, you, can, you see that the church really took to heart a lot of these things that Jesus said. You know, I mean, when Jesus gave the story about like, um, hey, uh, when I was cold, you gave me something to wear. When I was hungry, you, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And um, 
And then the other one were like, well, when did we see you first? I mean, those, those guys didn't forget those stories. I mean, that, that meant something to them. And then, and then James talking about faith without works is dead. I mean, um, and this is true in uh, pure religion to take care of orphans and widows. And uh, <clears throat> so Paul, in his letter to Titus, was leaving him in Crete to appoint elders in the churches and was also giving him instructions to pass on, not just personal instructions um, for himself. He was giving him instructions to share with the churches um, and the leaders of those churches. And these three passages were in those instructions. Titus 2, 11 through 15, and it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's like that was God's plan. He gave himself for that reason, uh, one of the reasons. And then verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So he's telling Titus, I want you to declare these things, all of those things that I just read, including that, um, that our great God, Savior Jesus Christ, gave himself to redeem us and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. And then in Titus 3a, it says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, insist on them, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then Titus 3.14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It'd be like if, if um, you know, if, if we had someone, apostle, talking to us and giving, writing a letter to us, me, David, and Eric, saying like, hey, and then this is my instructions to you guys. You need to get this out to your people. And they said like, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Um, in Acts 9, there's an example of Dorcas, um, who was also Tabitha. I think I'd rather go by Tabitha. <laughs> um, but uh, a disciple of Joppa was full of good works and acts of charity. Uh, it says one known thing she did was she made garments for the widows. I mean, she was clearly, there was, there was something going on with them paying attention to widows because in Acts 6, it, there was a lot of widows, right? I mean, they were taking care of widows. I mean, there couldn't, there, there must have been a good number of widows that they were taking care of. Um, and then in Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we, one of the reasons we were created, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So this kind of goes together with 1 Peter 2, 9 from last week. 
Um, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think that one way that his excellencies can be proclaimed to the darkened world around us is through good works. Um, are the good deeds, are the good works of his disciples in his local church, the Liberty Hills Bible Church, the window, or a window, in, in this world through which people come to see and adore the glory of God. In Revelation, um, it's interesting, um, because I looked up all the verses on the churches, um, he's talking to the, the angels, and this is sidebar, but the angel of the church of Thyatira, the angel of the church, of, it, it's, um, it's interesting, but... Um, I don't know really what's going on, but it, it kind of, it looks like there's an angel almost like over a city, you know? Uh, maybe perhaps there's an angel over the angel of Kansas City region. I don't know. Uh, but uh, it appeared that there was like an angel, not necessarily over a local church, but over a city that might have had multiple local churches. I don't know. But, um, the phrase is used, I know your works, repeatedly. I know your works. I know your works. Um, to, to different churches being addressed. And um, I think we just need to pray and trust and, um, and put hands and feet to our prayers. Um, not just pray, but, but actually, um, I heard this phrase one time, I don't know who said it, pray hard, believe hard, and work hard. So we need to pray and believe and then put hands and feet to our prayers and faith that God will see evidence by our good works at the Liberty Hills Bible Church that he is real and that he is glorious and that the community around us will see the same. And um, there's a phrase used about the church in Thyatira um, that I think we ought to pray for ourselves. It says, that angel says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Um, this church was started 19 years ago, LHBC, and may we all be praying fervently that God would use us for his glory for our latter works to exceed anything that has ever been done before. Not for our glory, but for his. And so that LHBC will be a window to our community through which people come to see and adore the glory of God. And I want to close with a story. Um, and this is a sobering story um, that will challenge you, but it's a good story in that it confirms God's truth. Uh, and this is from the early church, just to show that they really were living this life of good works. Um, this was part of the how of how they were accomplishing the mission. Um, but it confirms this verse where Jesus said, truly, truly, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. <clears throat> so, um, I wish I wish that I had come across this um, when the whole COVID thing started, but um, I didn't. But uh, 
So this story is called, um, well, it's just from an article called Responding to Pandemics, Four Lessons from Church History. I'm just going to go through two real quick. Um, uh, briefly mentioned four pandemics in history and how the church has responded in the way of Christ. Um, let's be uh, inspired by their faith. Um, as we look to these historic examples of the Spirit lead us in our application. Um, okay, uh, but here, here's one. Number one, Dionysius, Bishop of Alexandria, um, the plague of Cyprian, which was in 249 to 262 AD, was a lethal pandemic that at its height caused upwards of 5,000 deaths a day in Rome. That's worse than COVID has been. I mean, we're talking one city, one city. 5,000 deaths a day in Rome. While the plague severely weakened the Roman Empire, the Christian response to it won admiration and a greater following. Dionysius, Bishop of Alexandria, reported this, is what he said. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their speed. This evident Christ-likeness, taking death in order to give life, stood in stark contrast to those outside the church. Dionysius continues, but with the heathen, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick and fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death, which yet, with all their precautions, it was not easy for them to escape. Plagues intensify the natural course of life. They intensify our own sense of mortality and frailty. They also intensify opportunities to display countercultural, counterconditional love. The church rose to the challenge in the second century, winning both admirers and also converts. Um, and then number two, this last one I'll share, happened a century later, just, you know, about a hundred years later. Um, so in 251, about the time that this first plague happened or during that time period, um, it says that um, the Christian population was just shy of 1.2 million, uh, which was only 1.9% of the whole Roman Empire. Very small, right? Um, it's an incredible increase from the second century, though the church still represented only a tiny minority within the empire. Counterintuitively, though, another plague contributed to the church's onward growth. This plague was different, perhaps measles, though we're not sure, but the mortality rates were just as high as those a century earlier. Towns in Italy were abandoned, some of them forever. The military and Roman infrastructure were massively weakened. Once again, though, Christians shone in the midst of the trial. Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, put it like this. Again, this is the, I guess, the church had already had a structure of bishops in place. How suitable 
how necessary it is that this plague and pestilence, which seems horrible and deadly, searches out the justice of each and every one and examines the mind of the human race, whether the healthy care for the sick, whether relatives dutifully love kinsmen as they should, whether physicians do not deserve the afflicted. The plagues search us. They discover in us either the way of the flesh, self-preservation, or the way of the spirit, self-giving sacrifice. The third century plague found in the church a spirit-filled people willing to walk the way of their master. Christian death rates were significantly lower than those of the general population, perhaps only 10%, though the word only is a fearful qualifier. The mutual love of brothers and sisters in Christ meant that, on the one hand, those who provided care were at a higher risk of infection, but on the other hand, those who were infected had better survival rates. As these Christians made themselves vulnerable to death, they actually found life. Once the plague had swept through, Christians were stronger. They were stronger as a proportion of society, since more of them survived. They had more resilience because they had a robust hope in the face of death, and they were stronger as communities, forging even closer bonds to the sufferings they faced. If you want to know how Christianity went from an obscure and marginal movement to representing around 6 million believers by AD 300, plagues were a huge factor. So I just wanted to share um, that those stories because it just confirms how the early church responded to Jesus' words and how they were rich in good works. And But, I mean, to the, to the point of sacrificing their lives. Um, so anyway, I just leave us with that. Let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, God, I, I, I just thank you even for your saints who have been before us, God. Um, ones that, you know, uh, are, we know are, are nameless to us and, you know, ones we don't see written in their names of Hebrews 11. And, but yet, God, I mean, your gospel was propagated because of them their self-sacrifice, not their self-preservation. And God, I just I just pray, God, that um, you would uh, use use our church, God, that um, our latter works, God, um, uh, in the years to come, God, would be would be greater than than the works in the previous twenty years, um, to where you would get glory, to where. Um, there was just our church would be a window of, of your glory to the world, and uh, or really just to, first of all to the community around us. And um, God, I just pray that you would do that work in our hearts. We know um, we we need you to to do a work in our hearts, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.